This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, December 24th, 2017, episode 49, concerning a medieval Marley's ghost. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. So begins, sort of, with a bit of abridgment, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, from 1843. This Christmassy episode, we're going to be talking about ghost traditions, and it's appropriate that here, uh, technically a few sentences into the opening page of A Christmas Carol, um, I skipped the memorable dead as a doornail line, for instance, to get to it, uh, but here we have Dickens right at the start referencing the ghost of Old Hamlet. Both Old Hamlet and Jacob Marley are ghosts with a mission. Though, of course, one wants his surviving relation to pursue a path of bloody revenge that leads ultimately to his own destruction, and the other is trying to save the soul of his surviving partner. Dickens had a range of traditions to draw from in creating Marley's ghost. The English stage tradition of ghosts running back to the Elizabethan theater of Shakespeare was certainly part of it, and Elizabethan ghosts themselves are indebted to the Renaissance revival of Roman drama and the ghosts that appear in the closet dramas of Seneca and other Senecan playwrights. Uh, and I'm indebted to a fascinating article by Catherine Belsey called Shakespeare's Sad Tale for Winter, Hamlet and the Tradition of Fireside Ghost Stories, uh, for explaining these Roman roots of English ghosts. Um, though this is a kind of proper genealogy. Uh, they are just one great-grandparent out of many lines in the ghost tradition. These Senecan ghosts generally appear right at the beginning of a play to explain how they met their terrible deaths and to deliver a prophecy of doom. And then the main action starts and the ghost typically isn't seen again. It really is an exposition delivery device and a way of goosing the audience right at the start, ratcheting up the tension and both Old Hamlet and Marley serve similar functions in their respective texts, though they also act as instigators for the plot, setting characters off upon a course of action. There's another classical ghost tradition that Dickens may well have drawn on, or may have drawn on sources that drew on it. An old short item from 1938 by Merle J. Reif suggests that some of the ghost tropes we see in Dickens could trace back to Roman beliefs, as recorded in a letter of Pliny the Younger. Sometime around the year 100 CE, Pliny wrote the following letter to a Roman senator named Lucius Licinius Sura, in which he tells, alongside a couple of other spiritual encounters, the story of a haunted house, and furnishes it with some of the iconic characteristics of hauntings that we still see in ghost stories today. Here is Pliny's letter.
present recess from business we are now enjoying affords you leisure to give and me to receive instruction. I am extremely desirous, therefore, to know whether you believe in the existence of ghosts, and that they have a real form and are a sort of divinities, or only the visionary impressions of a terrified imagination. What particularly inclines me to believe in their existence is a story which I heard of Curtius Rufus. When he was in low circumstances and unknown in the world, he attended the governor of Africa into that province. One evening as he was walking in the public portico, there appeared to him the figure of a woman of unusual size and of beauty more than human. And as he stood there terrified and astonished, she told him she was the tutelary power that presided over Africa and was come to inform him of the future events of his life, that he should go back to Rome to enjoy high honors there and return to that province invested with the proconsular dignity and there should die. Every circumstance of this prediction actually came to pass. It is said further that upon his arrival at Carthage, as he was coming out of the ship, the same figure met him upon the shore. It is certain, at least, that being seized with a fit of illness, though there were no symptoms in his case that led those about him to despair, he instantly gave up all hope of recovery, judging, apparently, of the truth of the future part of the prediction by what had already been fulfilled, and of the approaching misfortune from his former prosperity. Now the following story, which I'm going to tell you just as I heard it, is it not more terrible than the former, while quite as wonderful? There was at Athens a large and roomy house, which had a bad name, so that no one could live there. In the dead of the night a noise, resembling the clashing of iron, was frequently heard, which, if you listened more attentively, sounded like the rattling of chains, distant at first, but approaching nearer by degrees. Immediately afterwards a specter appeared in the form of an old man of extremely emaciated and squalid appearance, with a long beard and disheveled hair rattling the chains on his feet and hands. The distressed occupants, meanwhile, passed their wakeful nights under the most dreadful terrors imaginable. This, as it broke their rest, ruined their health, and brought on distempers, their terror grew upon them, and death ensued. Even in the daytime, though the spirit did not appear, Yet the impression remained so strong upon their imaginations that it still seemed before their eyes and kept them in perpetual alarm. Consequently, the house was at length deserted, as being deemed absolutely uninhabitable, so that it was now entirely abandoned to the ghost. However, in hopes that some tenant might be found who was ignorant of this very alarming circumstance, a bill was put up, giving notice that it was either to be let or sold. It happened that Athenodorus, the philosopher, came to Athens at this time, and reading the bill, inquired the price. The extraordinary cheapness raised his suspicion. Nevertheless, when he heard the whole story, he was so far from being discouraged that he was more strongly inclined to hire it, and in short, actually did so. When it grew towards evening, he ordered a couch to be prepared for him in the front part of the house, and after calling for a light, together with his pencil and tablets, directed all his people to retire. But that his mind might not, for want of employment, be open to the vain terrors of imaginary noises and spirits, he applied himself to writing with the utmost attention. The first part of the night passed in entire silence, as usual. At length, a clanking of iron and rattling of chains was heard. However, he neither lifted up his eyes nor laid down his pen, but, in order to keep calm and collected, tried to pass the sounds off to himself as something else. 
The noise increased and advanced nearer till it seemed at the door and at last in the chamber. He looked up, saw, and recognized the ghost exactly as it had been described to him. It stood before him, beckoning with the finger like a person who calls another. Athenodorus, in reply, made a sign with his hand that it should wait a little, and threw his eyes again upon his papers. The ghost then rattled its chains over the head of the philosopher, who looked up upon this, and seeing it beckoning as before, immediately arose, and, light in hand, followed it. The ghost slowly stalked along, as if encumbered with its chains, and turning into the area of the house, suddenly vanished. Athenodorus, being thus deserted, made a mark with some grass and leaves upon the spot where the spirit left him. The next day, he gave information to the magistrates and advised them to order that spot to be dug up. This was accordingly done, and the skeleton of a man in chains was found there. For the body, having lain a considerable time in the ground, was putrefied and moldered away from the fetters. The bones being collected together were publicly buried, and thus, after the ghost was appeased by the proper ceremonies, the house was haunted no more. This story I believe upon the credit of others. What I'm going to mention I give you upon my own. I have a freedman named Marcus, who is by no means illiterate. One night, as he and his younger brother were lying together, he fancied he saw somebody upon his bed who took out a pair of scissors and cut off the hair from the top part of his own head, and in the morning it appeared his hair was actually cut and the clippings lay scattered about the floor. A short time after this, an event of similar nature contributed to give credit to the former story. A young lad of my family was sleeping in his apartment with the rest of his companions when two persons clad in white came in, as he says, through the windows, cut off his hair as he lay, and then returned the same way they entered. The next morning it was found that this boy had been served just as the other, and there was the hair again spread about the room. Nothing remarkable indeed followed these events, unless perhaps that I escaped a prosecution, in which, if Domitian, during whose reign this happened, had lived some time longer, I should certainly have been involved. For after the death of that emperor, articles of impeachment against me were found in his crutore, which had been exhibited by Carus. It may therefore be conjectured, since it is customary for persons under any public accusation to let their hair grow, that this cutting off the hair of my servants was a sign that I should escape the imminent danger that threatened me. Let me desire you then to give this question your mature consideration. The subject deserves examination, as I trust I am not myself altogether unworthy a participation in the abundance of your superior knowledge. And though you should, as usual, balance between two opinions, yet I hope you will lean more on one side than on the other, lest, whilst I consult you in order to have my doubts settled, you should dismiss me in the same suspense and indecision that occasioned you the present application. Farewell. So, in this letter, the chains are, of course, the most obvious link, so to speak, uh, with the ghost of Jacob Marley. But we might also note the refusal of the stolid old gentleman, philosopher in one case, miser in the other, to be overly perturbed by the ghost. Now, Scrooge is a bit more rattled by Marley's ghost than Athenodorus, 
But he does have his famous rejoinder about Marley being an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. The product of a disordered stomach. And the other spirits in Pliny's three tales seem akin to the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, either in how they seem to be almost allegorical representations of ideas, as with the tutelary spirit of Africa, or, as with both that spirit and the barber spirits, how they come with a prophetic message of what is or will be happening in a person's life. But none of Pliny's ghosts are there to change the lives of the people they appear to. The non-human spirits convey prophecies of the future, and the human ghost reveals a secret of his own past, his unhallowed burial that prevented him from finding rest after death. But if we jump ahead into the Middle Ages, you knew we'd get there, we can find a ghost who's not a helpful saint or angel, but rather a damned soul who nonetheless returns to earth to save the soul of a friend one of the major Marley elements that we're lacking so far in our classical traditions, and even in the later example of Old Hamlet's ghost. Our medieval ghost story comes from William of Malmesbury, from his Gesta Regum Anglorum, or The Chronicle of the Kings of England. In his account of the career of William the Conqueror, he discusses Brittany as one of the territories conquered by William, and because he says he won't have any real occasion to come back to discussing Brittany later in his text, he takes the opportunity to drop in an otherwise unrelated anecdote of something interesting that happened in Brittany. At least William of Malmesbury acknowledges that he's inserting a digression. Plenty of our other chronicles would just drop in a story like this without any kind of segue. Lanercost Chronicle, I'm looking at you. Anyway, I don't think this text needs a whole lot of preface. It's a digression. It comes without context pretty much by nature. And so let's get right to it. Here it is, as translated by John Sharp and J.A. Giles. And since I shall have but little to say of Brittany hereafter, I will here briefly insert an extraordinary occurrence which happened about that time in the city of Nantes. There were in that city two clerks, who, though not yet of legal age, had obtained the priesthood from the bishop of that place more by entreaty than desert, the pitiable death of one of whom, at length, taught the survivor how near they had been to the brink of hell. As to the knowledge of literature, they were so instructed that they wanted little of perfection. From their earliest infancy, they had in such wise vied in offices of friendship that according to the expression of the comic writer, to serve each other they would not only stir hand and foot, but even risk the loss of life itself. Wherefore, one day when they found their minds more than usually free from outward cares, they spoke their sentiments in a secret place to the following effect that for many years they had given their attention sometimes to literature and sometimes to secular cares, nor had they satisfied their minds, which had been occupied rather in wrong than proper pursuits, that in the meanwhile the bitter day was insensibly approaching which would burst the bond of union which was indissoluble while life remained. Wherefore they should provide in time that the friendship which united them while living should accompany him who died first to the place of the dead. 
They agreed, therefore, that whichever should first depart should certainly appear to the survivor, either waking or sleeping, if possible, within thirty days, to inform him that, according to the platonic tenet, death does not extinguish the spirit, but sends it back again, as it were, from prison, to God its author. If this did not take place, then they must yield to the sect of the Epicureans, who hold that the soul, liberated from the body, vanishes into air or mingles with the wind. Mutually plighting their faith, they repeated this oath in their daily conversation. A short time elapsed, and behold, a violent death suddenly deprived one of them of life. The other remained, and seriously revolving the promise of his friend, and constantly expecting his presence during thirty days, found his hopes disappointed. At the expiration of this time, when, despairing of seeing him, he had occupied his leisure in other business, the deceased, with that pale countenance which dying persons assume, suddenly stood before him, when awake and busied on some matter. The dead man first addressing the living, who was silent, Do you know me? said he. I do, replied the other. Nor am I so much disturbed at your unusual presence, as I wonder at your prolonged absence. But when he had accounted for the tardiness of his appearance, At length, said he, at length, having overcome every impediment, I am present. Which presence, if you please, my friend, will be advantageous to you, but to me, totally unprofitable. For I am doomed by a sentence which has been pronounced and approved to eternal punishment. When the living man promised to give all his property to monasteries and to the poor, and to spend days and nights in fasting and prayer for the release of the defunct, he replied, What I have said is fixed, for the judgments of God by which I am plunged into the sulfurous whirlpool of hell are without repentance. There I shall be tossed for my crimes as long as the pole whirls round the stars or ocean meets the shores. The rigor of this irreversible sentence remains forever devising lasting and innumerable kinds of punishment. Now, therefore, let the whole world seek of availing remedies, and that you may experience some little of my numberless pains, behold, said he, stretching out his hand, dripping with a corrupted ulcer, one of the very smallest of them. Does it appear trifling to you? When the other replied that it did appear so, he bent his fingers into the palm and threw three drops of the purulent matter upon him, two of which, touching his temples and one his forehead, penetrated the skin and flesh as with a burning cautery and made holes the size of a nut. When his friend acknowledged the acuteness of the pain by the cry he uttered, This, said the dead man, will be a strong proof to you as long as you live of my pains, and, unless you neglect it, a singular token for your salvation. Wherefore, while you have the power, while indignation is suspended over your head, while God's lingering mercy waits for you, change your habit, change your disposition, become a monk at Hrena, in the monastery of St. Melanius. When the living man was unwilling to agree to these words, the other, sternly glancing at him, If you doubt, wretched man, said he, Turn and read these letters. And with these words he stretched out his hand, inscribed with black characters, in which Satan and all the company of infernals sent their thanks from hell to the whole ecclesiastical body, as well for denying themselves no single pleasure as for sending, through neglect of their preaching, 
so many of their subject souls to hell as no former age had ever witnessed. With these words, the speaker vanished, and the hearer, distributing his whole property to the church and to the poor, went to the monastery, admonishing all who heard or saw him of his sudden conversion, an extraordinary interview, so that they exclaimed, It is the right hand of the Almighty that has done this. I feel no regret at having inserted this for the benefit of my readers. Now I shall return to William. So, another man on the path to damnation is saved by the stern intervention of his dead partner. If we want to look at potential medieval threads running through Dickens' ghost, and of course we want to, the question of souls in purgatory is a big one. You find some medieval ghosts come back to the living in order to secure prayers for their souls, or, as with some of the revenants of William of Newburgh whom we heard about in episode 31, to receive absolution and find peace in the afterlife or from a different theological perspective, to install spiritual protections around their corpses so that evil spirits can't get into them and reanimate them. The early church actually denied the existence of ghosts. Augustine even asserts that the souls of the blessed are in heaven, which they would not voluntarily abandon, and the souls of the damned are in hell, from which they cannot escape. Thus, ghosts are a pagan superstition, or, if real, then must be caused by demonic spirits impersonating the dead. But popular belief in ghosts persisted, unquelled by theological argument, and once the doctrine of purgatory takes shape in the Middle Ages, then the church has a more orthodox means of explaining ghosts, since spirits in purgatory might conceivably appear to the living to solicit prayers or try to correct wrongs or otherwise atone for misdeeds. Then, of course, the Protestant reformers come in, and purgatory and ghosts are verboten as popish error. But again, doctrine of the preachers doesn't quite eradicate popular belief and popular stories. There's a lot of debate around Hamlet's ghost and how much it reflects Catholic purgatorial theory, uh, which would, of course, have been quite dangerous views to hold in Elizabethan England. Catherine Belsey attributes the purgatorial themes to Shakespeare drawing on the traditions of popular ghost lore more than crypto-Catholicism, but it is hard not to hear a very medieval worldview in the ghost lines, I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away but that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, etc. And those lines are echoed two centuries later when Marley speaks to Scrooge, It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes forth not in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. And then when Scrooge pleads, Speak comfort to me, Jacob, he answers, I have none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. 
nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is permitted to me. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me, in life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. Dickens is writing well beyond the days of burning stakes and secret assassins and all the blood and bodies of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation conflicts, and he's free to imagine a different kind of purgatory and a different kind of hell. But precisely what he's imagining, in theological terms, is left uh, distinctly vague. Is Jacob Marley damned to a ghostly hell on earth? Or is he perhaps atoning until some distant judgment day, when... At the end of creation, he may yet be saved. When he offers Scrooge a chance to escape his fate, is it a fate of an eternity in hell, or merely a very long span of purgatorial repentance? Beliefs about the feelings and psychology of the damned are too huge a historical topic to get into, and I'm simply not informed enough to even begin to crack that egg open. But it does seem to me that there's a curious split between those who imagine the damned as fundamentally angry, sort of more akin to demons, really. As they suffer, they do so with spite and contempt for God and goodness. They remain wicked and impious. And if they feel repentance or sorrow, it is the repentance and sorrow of getting caught red-handed. They feel sorry for themselves. They, like Satan, are prideful even in their torment. On the other hand you also see representations of the damned as seemingly genuinely regretting what they did and lamenting their alienation from God. Often, these are the stories of people who made one mistake and committed a grievous sin and then died an untimely death and find themselves damned for all time because they just screwed up once. These are usually presented as cautionary tales, like the urban legends of the person who does drugs just one time but winds up baking the baby in the oven. And of course, these kinds of people who accept their punishment as just and as what they deserve, they often have their infernal torments transplanted into a purgatorial realm when you find later examples of this same kind of story. Interestingly, the ghost of our medieval clerk, despite coming from an age of purgatorial ghosts, specifically says that he is damned to eternal punishment. He's performing a good deed for his friend, but his fate is sealed. And that is the way Marley, too, talks about himself. And yet, the medieval ghost's hell is one of sensory pain, the punishment after losing God's mercy, and a rather fickle mercy, it seems, in this world. In fact, while the ghost never suggests that God's judgment is unfair or his punishment undeserved, one rather feels that he sinks back into the sulfurous whirlpool in an attitude of self-pity for his sufferings. Dickens' hell is different, and in some ways more upsetting, maybe even more medieval in a certain respect. Marley and his fellow ghosts seem to have become good people after their death. While they do drag their chains around in their ceaseless wanderings, their suffering is not really about physical pain, or ectoplasmic pain. It gets a bit murky when you're talking about the torments of spirits, um, but they suffer emotional pain of not being able to act on the good impulses they now recognize. Their hell is one of everlasting 
repentance, which is not the attitude we normally associate with hell. It works for purgatory, but not really for most traditional hells. Uh, Here's the portrait Dickens gives us of the heart-rent torments of these spirits. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. That tone of finality, which resists purgatorial interpretation, is what strikes me as rather medieval, or at least one flavor of medieval, about this. There is a kind of cruelty to a heaven that would deny forgiveness for these spirits who are so painfully sensitive to the sufferings of others. As spirits, you can't call them wicked anymore. And yet, there is a kind of hard theological logic to it as well, and a kind of genius in letting the suffering of the helpless living become the suffering of the dead whose wickedness in life was simply not giving that help when they could have. All that said, as a closing thought, I just wanted to call out one of my favorite adaptations of A Christmas Carol, a mainstay of my family's Christmases, the musical Scrooge from 1970 starring Albert Finney. I grew up with this movie in a way that blocks any kind of critical distance for trying to assess its objective merits or even the quality of its songs, It seems to have not really made it into the canon of American Christmas films. Uh, Strikes me as rather forgotten, which I do think is a shame. Rewatching it right after rereading the original book, I did notice that they take some odd liberties with lines, tweaking and adjusting the dialogue in ways that it doesn't really need. Uh, Dickens' dialogue is mighty cinematic as is. Um, But what I wanted to talk about... Uh, regarding Scrooge is its portrayal of Marley's ghost as played by Alec Guinness. Scrooge. Marley? Generally speaking, I think you get two kinds of Marley's ghosts in performance, both of which are largely validated by the text. One leans into Marley as a kind of prophetic spirit, as a deliverer of a message, As someone whose main job is to give a little sermon, they're stern, they're chilly, they're accusatory, comfort, they have none to give. They're a bit like old Hamlet's ghost. 
The other approach is to lean into the self-pitying, self-accusatory, woe-is-me side of Marley, moaning, lamenting, oozing sadness and regret for the good they cannot do. What Guinness does is a bit different. His Marley is oddly playful. He says the words about how mankind should be our business, but I think he plays a Marley for whom that revelation is intellectual rather than emotional. His attitude towards Scrooge is not so much stern as it is a touch condescending, even sneering. His is a Marley that does not seem entirely trustworthy. He does a great thing that I never really noticed until I I was an adult, uh, despite having watched the Marley's ghost scene countless times through my childhood. A first thing no one would miss. uh, When Scrooge asks if he can sit down, Marley says, of course I can sit down, and he reaches out and telekinetically pulls a chair next to him. But then he sits down in the empty air immediately beside the chair. And then the little bit of acting business that Guinness does that I hadn't really noticed as a child is that he crosses his legs and lays his hands one atop the other over his knee. Except he doesn't. He holds the one hand just above the knee and the other just above the other hand so that none of his parts are touching. And even waves them very slightly uh, to indicate this frictionless hovering. On the one hand, Guinness is conveying incorporeality without any special effects other than lighting and a wire harness to help him float. But I think it goes beyond that to also suggest simulation of corporeality and humanity. Guinness's Marley is pretending to have a body, pretending to sit down. He says, of course I can sit down, but he can't really. He's faking it. There's a little hint of this in the original text when Scrooge asks Marley if he can see a toothpick. Uh, Marley says he can, and Scrooge says, but you're not looking at it. And Marley replies, but I can see it nonetheless, suggesting that his senses are no longer human senses, that he sees with more than just the eyes in his spectral body. With Guinness's Marley, there's a hint of deception, a little touch of something infernal lurking behind the human form. The musical version gives Marley a brief song, or a quasi-song, for when he shows Scrooge the other chained spirits like himself, and it omits the lamenting for one's inability to help the suffering that we get in the original book, and instead sounds a lot more like the sentiments of the ghost of our medieval clerk.
this sense of a Marley that's perhaps less fully converted to benevolence as a ghost than we might expect is reinforced by a rather infamously non-Dickensian scene that the creators of Scrooge inserted, which is at the end of the Ghost of Christmas Future segment, where Scrooge falls into his own grave and then finds himself in hell, where he's given a kind of orientation presentation by Marley and is fitted with his cartoonishly enormous chain. It's like the anchor chain for the Titanic. Here, Marley is basically an imp. He's an employee of Satan, slaving away in hell's accounting office. I grew up with a VHS recording of the network television edit of Scrooge, which leaves this whole scene out, and I have to say, I find that to be the far superior version. But if we were looking for a a most medieval Marley, the one that most resembles a revenant of William of Newburgh or the Byland Abbey ghost tales, Alec Guinness delivers him. This is a Marley that's not merely a mournful specter, but has a touch of the goblin or sprite to him. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard while on earth. And now I can never be rid of it any more than you will ever be rid of yours. Mine? It was as heavy and long as this seven Christmases ago. It's a terrible, ponderous chain you are making, Scrooge. Tell me more, Molly, but speak comfort to me. I have none to give. Comfort comes from other sources, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is given by other ministers than I to other kinds of men than you. All right, we have a mystery word to resolve before we can go off to our holiday festivities. Our word was Nesen, N-E-S-E-N. This is a late Middle English word meaning to sneeze, and a fitting one for the season Flu season. Neezen is a simplified form of an earlier verb, fneeze, which also means to sneeze. It can be found in Chaucer's Manciple's prologue. He speaketh in his nose and fneezeth fast. And that's fneeze, F-N-E-S-E. The Middle English form probably derives from an unattested Old English fneosan, to sneeze, This F-N combo at the start of a word is definitely an odd one. The Oxford English Dictionary only lists four words that start with F-N in English. One, which we can dismiss, is fnar, an Ottoman poetic word coined in the 1980s to indicate lecherous laughter, such as one might produce in response to a cheeky double entendre. The dictionary literally compares it to the Monty Python nudge-nudge-wink-wink line. Fnar, fnar, fnar is the written laughter equivalent of that. The other FN entries are fnast as a noun, breath, and then again as a verb, to breathe or snort. And then we have our fnisa. That's it for FN words. But this FN formation becomes slightly less peculiar when you learn that it's a sort of Germanic cognate to the same consonant cluster as P-N in Greek, as we see in pneuma, or in English borrowings, pneumatic or pneumonia, also relating to air and breath. P and F are similar consonants, and it's not uncommon for them to change into each other. P 
pater, father. Uh, That's part of Grimm's Law. Over time, English dropped the F, just as we don't pronounce the P in Pneuma. Uh, And that leads Phenisa to become Nisa, a change probably encouraged since Nisa and Neosa were also forms of the word nose, and sneezes and noses are conceptually related. But where, then, does sneeze come from? Well, that's interesting. The theory endorsed by the OED is that Phenisa had been replaced in speech and common usage by Nisa by the start of the 15th century. But when later writers encountered this form, Phenisa, in manuscripts or in Caxton's printed books, they misread the F as a long S, that weird version of S that you see in early printed books, the one that people today who are unfamiliar with will actually read as an F because it looks like a lowercase F without the crossbar. Um, So you might see a title involving the Acts of Assembly passed by Parliament, and it looks like the Acts of Assembly passed by Parliament. And students also have great fun with the appearance of words like suck or sucking in older texts. Anyway, this old Phenisa is miscopied as Sneesa, and people like that as an intensifier of Nisa. And so it not only stuck around, but ultimately supplanted Nisa and Nisan, leaving us with just sneeze. Well, I hope your holidays are sneezeless. Uh, and that the only ghosts you encounter are in Winter's Tales or community theater. The Riddle is also going on vacation, probably running off for a tryst with the Car Talk Puzzler, but it and the show will be back towards the end of January, fingers crossed. Uh, Not fingers crossed that the show will be back at all, just that it will be back on that particular timely schedule. Until then, you can offer your encouragements, or chastisements, or prophecies of Christmases yet to come, by following us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or emailing me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, or visiting that selfsame web domain where you can find more about this and every episode of the show. So, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening. I must go now. Wait, I'm doomed to wander through the world in everlasting repentance. Remember what has passed between us. Farewell, Scrooge.